Hey, good morning, church family. Uh, I'm going to give this podium thing a try today, and we'll see how it goes. You guys okay with that? Yeah. All right. Um, So I find in life that uh, the response is really important, right? Um, Think about different situations where the response, it's kind of a game changer. It's a make it or break it type deal. Uh, So yesterday I was a part of leading a wedding, right? Whenever Evan asked Anna, the couple that were getting married yesterday, whenever Evan asked Anna if he, if she would marry him, like the response is a pretty big deal. Like yes or no, this is a pretty big, pretty big game changer. When Holly, my wife, when she looks at me and she says, how do I look in this? The response is a pretty big deal, right? Are you with me on this? When you are, um, when you are in, a, in an annual evaluation and your uh, supervisor, he's offering some un, uh, unexpected critique or unexpected correction, uh, your response, my response, it's a pretty big deal. I find that it's the exact same thing when we, um, when we come up against the truth of the gospel. We have to respond to the gospel, we have to. Everyone, everyone does. So even on this rainy morning, we come in this room together, it's cold outside, and you're going to hear the gospel. We together, even as we're singing, we're rallying around the truth, this truth, the good news, that Jesus, that he came and he lived in perfection, flawless, without error, without sin, and that he died in our place as a sacrifice for us, so that the sins, our sins that separate us from God, so that they would be forgiven, that he would be an eternal sacrifice. So he died on a cross for us. He rose again from the grave. He ascended into heaven, and he sits next to the right hand of God the Father for eternity. And in, and in turn, when God looks at us, sinful humanity that's separated from him because of sin, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see everything that should keep me out of relationship with him. He doesn't see my pride, my greed, my self-seeking, my bitterness, my anger. He doesn't see those things. I get the goods. We get the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus. That's ours through what Christ did on the cross. And when we hear that truth this morning, when we hear that really, really good news that we don't have to spend eternity separated from God, that calls, that calls for a response. What are we going to do with that? How are we going, how are we going to respond? The passage that we're going to look at this morning is in Acts chapter 14, if you want to go ahead and open, open your Bibles. And this passage is one that illustrates this, um, illustrates this idea perfectly. This idea of truth and response. You know, we've been um, walking through, I feel like even since January, kind of what our response is to the gospel. In, in January, the beginning of March, Danny walked us through a series on the church and who we are to be as a people together responding, uh, responding to the truth of Jesus. Um, and then since GIC, we've been walking through this set apart series that, that we as the people of God, we are set apart as his people to represent him, to carry the name of Jesus. And last week, Danny talked through in Acts chapter 13, he talked through um, the message, the message of the gospel. 
And uh, he, he, the setting for that was in Antioch, and the, the, the response to the gospel was, was pretty favorable. And this morning, we're going to kind of take a different, a different look at that. So look with me at Acts chapter 14, and uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to work, uh, work through verse 18. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned, Paul and Barnabas learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. And, then, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying, like Onion, the gods have come down to visit us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus rose in the temple and was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer their sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So in this passage, in the beginning of Acts chapter 14, we see a lot of response. There's a lot going on here, right? So Paul and Barnabas, just starting out at the very beginning of the section, and we'll kind of break it into sections with our time together this morning. But Paul and Barnabas, at the beginning of the section, they go to uh, the synagogue. They go um, to where they go whenever they enter any city. It's kind of like what we're seeing as their pattern in Acts. They go to the synagogue, and they preach the good news of Jesus. And what it says here um, at the beginning of the passage is that once they speak the good news of Jesus, that there is a response. That both Jews and Gentiles, they believed in the good news of Christ. They believed. So uh, the way that that Luke writes this, he says that they spoke the gospel in such a way. Um, One thing that we want to be clear on the outset here is that the way that Paul and Barnabas, the way in which they spoke the gospel— They spoke it in a contextual way. They spoke it in a way um, to which their hearers would be able to understand and um, and be able to kind of grasp the truth of Jesus. Like if you look back in Acts chapter 13, the way that Paul talked about um, uh, the gospel— he did it away when he's in the synagogue where he's pulling from Jewish texts. He's pulling from ideas that would be common to Jewish language and common to Jewish culture. So whenever we see that Paul and Barnabas, when Paul speaks and he does it in such a way that people believe, it's not like Paul is using this really um, kind of flowery language or he's trying to be overly persuasive in a way that may be even manipulating. 
what he's doing is he's speaking the truth of the gospel in a way that his audience is going to hear the truth of the gospel. And he does it, and they believe, Jews and Gentiles, together there is belief. So this is an initial response that we see in this passage. The second thing we see is a group, there was a group that didn't believe, but the unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So there's this group that does believe full on on board. Yes, we get what you're saying about Jesus. We trust in him. We believe in him. And then you have this whole other section that it's not just that they don't believe, but they don't believe. And then they're trying to persuade people to kind of jump in their camp. We're in opposition. We're in unbelief. And we want you to turn with us. We want you to be on the same page. So we've got belief and then we've got unbelief. But then we see how Paul and Barnabas even respond to the unbelief. It says, so there was this crew that that didn't believe. They were calling people into their unbelief along with them. And Paul and Barnabas' response was not, well, well, they don't believe. This is a tough go. They must have a rough lot. Their response is, so they remained for a long time. They spoke boldly for the Lord. They did signs and wonders with their hands. So they're going to persevere in the midst of even unbelief. They see that they are set apart in a call for response. And so they do that. They persist in it, carrying the good news of Jesus Christ. So then we see, verse 4, the city was divided. We see this response of, of belief and unbelief kind of laid bare. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. When the attempt was made by the Gentiles and the Jews and the rulers to mistreat them, Paul and Barnabas, they, um, they leave. They're going to be stoned, they're going to be mistreated. They're ambassadors. They are on mission. They have a goal in mind to carry the name of Jesus. And so when they hear that, that, that their lives are at stake at this point, they move. They move to another city. They move to another location. But what we see is a um, continuation of what their mission is. Look at verse 7 here. It says, and they, um, and they continued to preach the gospel. So it wasn't like they hit a rough lot whenever they were preaching in Iconium and they said, things went bad here, we're going to transition out, we're going to figure out maybe another, um, another way to maybe approach this whole Jesus thing, maybe one that will be less offensive, maybe one that um, will cause a less, uh, a less abrasive response. What it says is they continue to preach the gospel. So the response is belief and unbelief, but the mission for Paul and Barnabas is clear, to preach Jesus And they move forward in that mission. So then we get to verse 8. Verse 8 says that there's a man that's sitting and he hasn't been able to walk. Um, This section right here, it looks a lot like Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John, when they're at the temple gate. Um, There's a man who's lame, he can't walk. The way that that Luke writes this, he says that um, he hasn't been able to walk his entire life. And what Paul does is he's speaking and this man hears And Paul looks at the man, and somehow, um, whether this is a gift of the Spirit, he's able to have some sort of spiritual discernment that sees the faith inside of this man. He calls forth the healing of the Lord in this man, a physical, tangible, see-with-your-own-eyes healing in this guy. Never been able to walk his whole life. He's been sitting. He hears. Paul sees his belief and calls him to stand. Okay? So we see here, even when they've moved, they've transitioned, they've even gone to a different place where the language is different. Their means are different. They've gone from an educated society, um, people that are listening in the Jewish synagogue more than likely were able to hear and understand and even have a historical background, to whenever they go to Lystra, they're working with a a predominantly uneducated, semi-literate, if not illiterate all the way, demographic. And they are preaching the gospel 
in such a way that this man who's sitting, he hears, he has faith, and he's healed. His response to the gospel is belief. Now, this, this next section of where we go right here, this is where things, uh, things get a little gray. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 11 with me. So this healing has just happened. And it says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, and they say, The gods have come down in the likeness of men. They've come down to be with us. Okay, so there is um, there's a story that historians likely associate with this city in Lystra. Um, it's, it's a story that said that there, it's kind of like this prophecy that there was going to be people that, that come, that um, Zeus and Hermes are going to come down and um, they're going to come in the likeness of men and they're going to be people that believe in them and people that don't believe in them. And the people that do believe in them, that Zeus and Hermes are going to go, are you following with me on this? Okay, Zeus and Hermes are going to go stay um, at their house. People that don't believe their houses are going to be washed away with a flood, right? So we've got this semi-educated people that they still probably have an oral history, um, a semi-literate people that they see these people come down and Paul speaks in this way. This man believes and the guy believes and he's healed. Paul heals him. And so their cultural background automatically goes to, well, this must be what that story was about. This must be about Zeus and Hermes. And so they say, these are our gods. And then the, 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 um, the priest at the temple of Zeus, he um, hears about this and they come and they're getting ready to offer sacrifices uh, to Paul and Barnabas. You have to imagine that if you were Paul and Barnabas, you are just in this area. You have come maybe about 60 miles from the place you were before and you've been camping out there for a while. And you're able to have kind of really good, intelligible conversation with the people that you're around. People are believing. There's some that are not believing. But then you come to this next area, and conversation is different. Culture is different. They more than likely weren't able to fully understand everything that was going on around them. And we know this by the way that Luke writes in this chapter. What he says is, um, verse 12, they called uh, Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, they called uh, Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Um, So they get this stuff together, the priest does, and they come toward Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, it's almost like they finally realize what's going on here. They tear their garments and they start running out toward the crowd. Now, this tearing of garments, this is um, a, a typical Jewish kind of response to lament. It just, um, it's this raw expression of emotion. So they see what's happening. People are coming to offer them gifts to make sacrifices to them like they themselves are gods. So we see the belief of the man who is healed, and then we actually even see belief in the people that something has happened. It's almost like they've been waiting for someone to come and give them a reason to have faith. And when they do that faith, that faith is is misguided. They look to Zeus, they look to Hermes. Then keep going with me in this passage. Verse 14, Paul and Barnabas heard of it. They tore their garments. They rushed out toward the crowd, crying out, Men, why do you do these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Um, They are kind of uh, moralizing themselves right here. 
We're not who you think we are. We are people just like you. We're not from some other place. We are not gods come down. We're people just like you. And then he calls, I love the way he does this. He calls for repentance and then belief. He says, turn from those vain gods. Turn from things that you think are doing something for you and turn toward a living God. And he makes an appeal, even the way that he contextualizes the gospel here. Stay with me. When he contextualizes the gospel, he's making an appeal to creation. Look around you. You may not have the scrolls. You may not have the education. We may not be able to debate from ancient texts. But look around you. Everything that is created, heaven, earth, the sea, everything that's in them, they come from a living God. Verse 16 is kind of this this gospel swap that's happening here. Verse 16, he says, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. It's almost like in the past, something else has happened, but something has caused that history, that past course of action to change. And that something is Jesus, because he now is for us the standard of belief. There is no longer the separation in this context between Jew and Greek, between Jew and Gentile. Belief and faith and hope and salvation is offered to all through the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes, what he does, he doesn't just say, forget the law to the Jews, forget everything that you've been living by for the past hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. What Jesus comes and says is, I fulfill all this for you because you can not do it. The law was meant to point to a need. And Jesus says to the Jews, I am the one who meets that need. Jesus says to the Greeks, you were outside of the family of God. You did not have the law. You did not have this set of rules to live by or this physical marker that shows that you're part of the family of God. You were on the outside, but now because of Jesus, you are invited into the family. So in the past, people went their own way, but now, now Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the way. He says, verse 17, yet he did not leave, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Something that I think is really interesting here is even the way in this context, um, Zeus, you guys know Greek, Greek mythology at all? Anybody? A couple of you do. Okay, so Zeus, uh, Zeus was commonly worshipped in this time, and what Zeus was semi-kind of responsible for, he was kind of the god of the heavens or god of the skies, and so he was in control of the weather. He was in control of the rain. So even when Paul is making this argument here, he's saying, turn from your false gods, turn from things that are fruitless, turn toward a living God who created all things, and who in turn, he is the one who gives you what you think these false gods are doing. He's speaking a common, a common language with them. Verse 18, it says, Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people for offering sacrifice to them. So in this passage, we see belief and we see unbelief. We see Jews and Gentiles believe. We see Jews and Gentiles that live in unbelief. We see a man that is crippled and laying by the side of the road and he believes and salvation through Jesus. He believes the gospel that Paul is speaking. And healing comes. We see a group of people that when the miraculous is done, their hearts turn toward belief 
but not belief in the true God. And we see Paul and Barnabas being two men who are so squared on understanding and proclaiming right belief in Jesus that they persist and they speak truth and they make the gospel ring clear in whatever situation they find themselves in. We see belief, we see unbelief. This morning, this passage, I think that it relates to a lot of us. In fact, I think that it relates to every single person in this room. Because like I said, when we started out, when we hear the gospel, we have an opportunity for response. And that response is crucial. In fact, all of our lives hinge on that one response. Will we or won't we believe in the truth of Jesus Christ? And when I talk about belief, I'm not just talking about saying words with my mouth or walking down an aisle or getting wet in a baptistry. That is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is belief that I am saying with my mouth, but it is so backed up in my person, not in perfection, but in striving to live out of relationship with Jesus, that my life is proof of my belief that our lives are proof of our belief that what Jesus did truly does change all of eternity. And that's not just a when we come to church thing and we're sitting in our pews thing or when we're in our Sunday school class thing or when we're serving on a mission trip thing. That's when we're at home, when we're in our offices, when we're in any relationship, that what Jesus has done affects all of us. That's the kind of belief that we're talking about this morning. Not just mental assent, not just cognitive understanding, but belief that drives action. It's the foundation of who we are. In this passage, we see it break down like this. We see belief in Paul and Barnabas. They're sharing the gospel. We see belief in the Jews and the Gentiles. They hear the word proclaimed and they believe. We see belief in Paul and Barnabas enduring and continuing through difficulty, twice in Iconium and then moving on to Lystra. They do the same thing. We see faith in the lame man taking steps of faith and belief. Now, when we look at the lame man, we're not talking about a name it and claim it type belief. If I believe in Jesus, if I believe in the gospel, then God's going to get me what I've been longing for my whole life. God did miraculous things in the scriptures, and he did it in such a way that the gospel would be made clear to people that saw them. Because the truth is that this man, he was healed. His legs were made right, and he was able to walk. But that man is going to age And that body is going to wilt. And there's potential that those legs will lose all strength and that he may never be able to use them again. And so did God just heal that man physically for the sake of his physical healing? No, God healed that man in order that he would receive glory and to set the stage for the truth of Jesus Christ to be made clear to the people that are perceiving and seeing what's happening right in front of their eyes. We see belief in these people. Just like we see belief, we see unbelief. Um, The way that the scriptures read at the beginning of chapter 14, he says that there were some who believed, a good number. But that also means that not everyone did. He didn't say everyone. He said there were some who believed. There were some who didn't, didn't believe, that lived in unbelief. It's even like it was an apathetic kind of response to the gospel. The truth is out there. I've heard it. 
I maybe kind of believe it, but uh, I'm going to shelve it for right now, and maybe I'm going to come back to it later. Maybe there were people that were living there that were in the kind of process of unbelief, walking through unbelief themselves. There's good potential that the people that are hearing had already heard some of the gospel. They had heard news that had traveled to them that there were Paul and Barnabas were coming their way, that this is what they were going to talk about. And there are some that may have believed parts of the gospel, but not believed at all. And so they're walking through this process of unbelief. There were unbelieving Jews that outright opposed the gospel. It wasn't just kind of like a part-time, like, hey, I may not believe this. It was direct opposition, even conspiring to harm and do ill toward Paul and Barnabas. They were against the good news of Jesus. Their unbelief fueled their action as well. And then lastly, I want to sit here for a little bit. Because I mentioned earlier that when we look at the people that saw, um, that saw the healing of the lame man, and they started attributing everything to Zeus and Hermes, they were saying the gods have come down and they have done this. I said early, earlier that there is a type of belief that we see in their response. It is misguided belief. It is a belief that says, God has done something, but I'm going to attribute it to something or someone other than him. So this morning, we talk about belief. There are those of you in this room that we're on the same page. We get what happens with Jesus. There are those of you that are living in unbelief that are here this morning. You may be here because your family has asked you to come, and this is the 20th time they've asked, and so you're finally giving in, and I'm sorry that I'm the one preaching this morning. But you're here. You're living in unbelief, but you're in this room today. There are some of you that are walking through the process of unbelief as well. That you want to believe. You want to believe. But there are some things that you just cannot reconcile in faith. You're not really sure what to do with it. And so you're kind of sitting on the fence. One leg could go one way or the other. And you lean more toward unbelief. But I think that when we look at the response of the people when they attributed goodness to something other than God, I think that those of us that believe and those of us that are living in unbelief, we both land at times in this camp. We look at things in our lives and good that comes, and we think, yeah, good job. Like, this is good. This is good. It must have come from my really hard work because I work hard. I'm a hard worker. And so the good that's coming right now, it comes because I am a hard worker. I endure. I make it happen. When I look at my relationships, I look at my family, and I see that I take good care of my parents. I am a good son. I do good. My parents, they must be so proud of me. When I look at my marriage and I see fruit of health in the the marriage that Holly and I have together, I think I'm a good husband. I'm doing good. I'm serving her well. I'm giving her everything she needs, everything she wants. When I look at my family and I see my three kids and I see goodness in them, when I see them occasionally love one another, when I see them 
respond respectfully to us as their parents. I think I am a good dad. Yes and amen. When I look at my desire for approval, and I work real hard, and I want to be noticed, and I want to be affirmed, I think, man, I really, really hope that this happens. I'm making my desires shaped around what I want my response to be, around what I want to get. I take what is, is given to me by the goodness of God through his grace, and I misguide that worship. I misguide that response. I say, success, you are my Zeus, and family, you are my Hermes. And I am going to work hard for you, and I am going to give you credit at the end of the day. And I'm working and operating out of these kind of functional gods that my effort, my work, my drive, my ability will accomplish and it will do something. And when it does that something, I'm going to say, well done me. These are my gods. I'm going to get my oxen. I'm going to get my garland and I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, I give you what I have. Because I do great things for you. Now, this is a tough, tough call. There are those of us that are living in belief, and when you hear me say this, you're like, man, you have got it all wrong. Like, I would never say that my effort accomplishes anything, or that my family is my God, or my job is what I put up on a pedestal. But my question is, when you look at our lives the same way that Paul and Barnabas were caught so off guard with the response of these people, do we see that same thing? Are there things that we are putting all of our energy, effort, worship into, expecting good to come from, other than God? Is our worship, is our belief, is it misguided? Because we want to believe Those of us that have faith in Jesus, it's even hard for us sometimes to even reconcile how these things fit together. So how do I work hard? How do I work diligently in my job and do it in such a way that God receives glory from it, in such a way that I'm worshiping him, giving glory to him in the way that I perform, in the way that I live in relationship, in the way that I parent? It's hard for us to connect those things at times. But how does, how does Paul, how does he respond to that? How does he respond to this people's misguided worship when it's headed in the wrong direction? Paul responds with the gospel. Paul says, everything you have is his. He calls for repentance. Turn from those vain things and turn toward a living God who has shown you every piece of goodness that you've ever had. Turn from those things, turn toward God. How does Paul respond to the disbelief of the people? Paul responds with the gospel. When they're coming after him, they disbelieve, the city's divided. It would have been easy to just turn and run. What, what did they do? They stay for a while, they labor, they speak 
the gospel. When people choose belief, what does Paul do? Paul continues to speak the gospel. So this morning, we have an opportunity that's sitting in front of us. We have an opportunity to respond, to respond to the gospel. And this morning, my encouragement to us is that as we respond to the gospel, that we individually would respond with, hear me here, respond with the gospel. If you are living in belief this morning in a fruit that says that I am dependent on God's goodness in my life, I am dependent on Jesus to get me through not just this year, but this second. If you're living there, believe in the gospel more, but recite it to yourself this morning. Remember the goodness that God has given you in your life. Our faith for believers is to be encouraged by the truth of Jesus. As you're living in unbelief this morning, my prayer is that the Spirit of God, which is how all of this works in the first place, that he would open your eyes to belief. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, Paul unpacks this really beautiful picture of what life looks like before the gospel and after the gospel and the life of a person. The way he talks about it, it's like this veil over our face. But when the Spirit of God comes, he lifts that veil and we can see for the first time truth. This morning, my prayer for those of us in the room living in unbelief would be that the Spirit would lift that veil. And then lastly, the one for me personally that has kind of hit home the most this week as I've been reflecting on this. I want us to name our false gods. What am I misguiding my belief in? What if you looked at me and I peeled back all the layers and you got to see every piece of my brain? Man, would that be real scary. If you got to see everything that's going on in there, who would you see me bringing everything toward, bringing my energy, my effort, and bowing down in front of? What would you see there? This morning, as our belief is misguided, it is only the gospel that corrects it. The gospel tells me that my performance will earn for me nothing if all I'm looking for is achievement. The gospel tells me that as a parent, my job is not just to have respectful kids that love each other. My job as a parent is to live out the gospel in front of them in order that they might believe the gospel. The gospel says that that my job as a husband is to not just have a wife that is happy with me. My job as a husband is to love and serve my wife the way that Jesus serves and loved the church. The gospel tells me that if I am bowing down before the idol of approval and giving my sacrifices there, the gospel tells me that I am approved through the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. So we take the gospel And we apply it to that misguided belief. And we know the truth of Jesus. In just a second, we are going to sing. We're going to sing a song. You're going to have an opportunity to come down front. Um, It's an opportunity for you to come and pray. 
If you're in a space of belief to say that to God, if you're in a space of unbelief to say that to God, if you're in a space where your belief is misguided, to come down and confess that. This is not a special um, uh, space. You don't get extra holy points if you come down front. But it's a, it's a physical indicator of wanting to move in obedience. But before we do that, I'm just, I just want to take a second, okay? I just want to take a second and just ask the Spirit to settle truth into our hearts. So before we stand, before we sing, I just want you to bow your heads for a minute. And I want you to ask God to raise up truth in you. Is there belief? Is there unbelief? Is there misguided belief? What truth is he speaking to you today? Father, this morning we thank you that your truth sits in our souls, that your spirit speaks words to us that convict us, that call us to repentance and call us toward belief. Belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus in such a way that it affects all of who we are. Not just this morning, not just in this second, But God, this morning, in this second, I pray that we would be obedient to respond to you, to respond in belief, to respond in right belief towards you. So God, collectively across the room, as you have identified those idols, those false gods in our lives, God, we tell you right now in this moment that we believe in you, that we trust in you, that you, God, through the work of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit, you are our only hope. Our only hope, Father. God, we love you. God, we worship you now in this moment. And we worship you as we physically respond, as we move. We thank you for your presence in this room this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.